John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 774.EX3607, certificate number 18461, the Memex. Promoting the information superhighway, Vice President Gore on Wednesday said he could foresee the day when a youngster just home from school, given a choice between Nintendo and the Encyclopedia Britannica, would choose to access the encyclopedia. If that is so, that might be even a greater accomplishment than the technology. Now, given the fact that uh, you have not slept very well and you're about to do a math episode. <laughs> there will be no math. Oh, okay, but, it, but it is computer science, which is famously something that you um, scorn. I believe and something, is a trade. And something that I disliked so much that I... Um, Went to the effort of going on a game show to try to get away from it. And yet, probably, what would you say, 30% of futurelings are computer scientists? And uh, a surprising number of uh, entries in this reference work are related to the computer revolution of, of the century in which we were born. Yeah. Despite our, our deep uh, suspicion and dislike of everything related to the science. But I think futurelings are going to look back at this time and think of it in, in two ways, the computer revolution and the social revolution, because you came into the <clears throat> 20th century with a lot of habits that were like eight, eight wealthy white guys pretty much running everything. Yeah. People still being pulled around in ox carts and, um, and you came out the other side where it's like, well, you know, the world is a global place and, um, people are completely intermixing and also, now they no longer touch or talk to each other because they all have heads up displays and they're they're looking at each other through Google Glass. And people also probably talk about produce getting better. Produce is a lot better, yeah. even from when we were kids. Yeah, when we were kids, there were like three fruits. Yeah, that's right. Do you want the mushy red apple, the mushy green apple, or the banana? <laughs> the banana. That, and sometimes of the year, you could get some citrus. But bananas were better. We've oh, covered absolutely. that. Oh, I have a banana in my bag right now. Well, apples were better too. It was just they weren't good in January. <laughs> um, but we, uh, this is a episode requested by a futureling named Mark, oh. or I guess a, a contemporary futureling. Thanks, Mark. I guess everybody is in somebody's future. Time is a flat circle. We spoke to Mark recently. Uh, he was the uh, former engineer who got in very early on a eh, fairly evil uh, oh, yes. um, tech company. And through 
that uh, success was able to, well, I don't know what he retires in sales or something. He's a, he, and he doesn't retire in sales, but right. he, he didn't retire from sales. Like our, our parents and grandparents did. He's a sailor. Uh, yeah. He's a Northwesterner, Northwester. Uh, he's a Northwester. He's a, he's a Norwester. Uh, but no, he lives here in Seattle and, and, and he's actually only one kiss away from me, right? He is close yes. friends with someone that I'm close friends with. So I'd heard of him. I'd heard tell of him, but, uh, but when but, we spoke to him, giving him his, um, you know, his little, uh, his, his zoom chat with us, he was in what, Florida for Florida, the winter, because yeah. that's where, if you work for an where, evil tech company and retire at age 50, why not? That's where the boats are. <laughs> <laughs> and he had gone back and forth on some on some show ideas he wanted to recommend. He had donated to the Patreon at a level where he could suggest a topic. And he's super computer science. Oh, yeah. All his ideas were extremely technical, except for the ones that were about um, musical theater, it turned out. It, uh-huh. was, it was twice in a row we had chatted with somebody in a technical field who was thinking of dumping it all for his first love community theater. Isn't, isn't that a futureling thing? It's like... It's like, oh, you're a computer scientist. It really but must be. You, but it's not that you want to be in a rock band. It's that you want to do like a traveling version of Our Town. If you know a certain number of C++ libraries and you know all the words to the uh, first number of Guys and Dolls, <laughs> you probably might be a futureling. Uh, <laughs> like he had a, a suggestion about like early news group culture, early right. uh, 90s Usenet <clears throat> culture. Right. We talked about the uh, magazine 2600, which I intend oh, to right. do a, uh, an episode on. Oh, that's right. He was, or, uh, no, that was your idea, not his, right? Uh, yeah, but he, I, I was trying to like get, el- elicit some like hacker uh, badinage with him. Like <laughs> you wanted to talk about phone freaking. I did. I, I did. And he was like, oh yeah, I was aware of that, but not, that's not really my I thing. I think maybe he's a little, is he too young for it? Too old. Uh, he's older than me. So he was maybe too. No, you think he'd be the right age for the Captain Crunch phone era. Freaking. <laughs> It's so fun. I just love that whole culture so much, but it's not that I under, ever understood it. But just the idea that you would you would war games somebody's war, like war games Mobile. <laughs> some dial up connection and beep, boop, 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 boop. Uh, and he, he finally settled on well when he was t- you know we were kind of batting ideas around on the call yeah and he you know had many thoughts about Anita Luz who wrote. Um, I always call it Diamonds or a Girl's Best Friend, who wrote Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Right. And, uh, but he also mentioned a technology name I had never heard before. I'm sorry to say, Van Nevar Bush. And this uh, was the part of the call where I started to get very lost. Oh, yeah. You wandered off. <laughs> I was like, uh, what? Who? You came back with a, <laughs> a, a hotter coffee and a weird hat. Uh, uh, but stu- looking up the Life and Times of Van Nevar Bush, uh, possibly one of the most influential um, thinkers of the 20th century and in great omnibus fashion, mostly, even though he had a bajillion accomplishments, largely through one article in The Atlantic, huh. which is what you want. Of course. You want the seminal text. Yes, and The, the Atlantic ends up being the... It's the it's the it's the record, right? I mean, the, the before the omnibus, yeah. The Atlantic magazine is is the platinum record before omnibus because it's got a what a storied history, you know. It does, right? All the way back to the to the early uh, early mid nineteenth century. I bet there was a newsletter called the Atlantic aboard the Mayflower. They're like, what should we yes. call this? And they looked around. <laughs> they were like, what? Hmm. What's uh, what's one of the primary features have here? You, have you read the New Atlantic? It uh, <laughs> it's got some juicy stuff on the captain. And, and a, uh, another, a, we saw another whale. The cockroach count went up. But you know, it's one of the only magazines I still subscribe to. 
it um <clears throat> i don't know it's just the right amount of it's the right amount of smart uh Vannevar bush before his uh remarkable atlantic article of 1945 his dates by the way 1890 to 1974 he died a month after my birth and he was almost alive for well, I don't know, Spanish-American War, so, State, statehood of Washington. Like, that's that's a that's a 84 years. He saw a different world. Those are almost exactly, that's the lifespan of my grandmother. Ah. She was born in 1889 and died in 1972. It's good to cross a century. Like, that's something we're going to have when we're old. Right. That not everybody gets. Oh, we remember back in the 70s. It just means you can remember a year where the second number is different, and that yeah. impresses young people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My, I, I had a friend uh, from high school write me yesterday, and she said, I'm doing graduate work on the 70s, and I want to talk to you because you remember the 70s. And I was like, <laughs> I do. I do. I love to talk about the 70s. Yeah, I'm sure you didn't resist too no, much. No, no, no. I was like, thank God. Bush was a young uh, inventor, engineer, uh, researcher. Um, during World War One, he joined the National Research Council. You know, he already had an academic job. I think he was going from maybe Tufts to MIT at the time. He joined the National Research Council to do scientific work for the war effort. Uh-huh. And uh, his great discovery was a way, uh, kind of a, a theoretical way of detecting submarines via changes they would uh, make to the Earth's magnetic field. You could measure, um, presumably because submarines are made out of metal. Right. Uh, only, in World War One. In World War One, And he got it to work, but the only problem is it would only work on a wooden ship. <laughs> if, you tried it, if you tried it on a metal ship, it would, uh, you know, the... The metal all around you would would be too much noise for the signal. Oh, you're saying that you had to be on a wooden ship. Oh, you're not. Yeah, the submarines don't have to be made of wood. Yeah, I, I was like, how would a wooden ship at the a, time? A, a change everybody the was field? using wooden submarines, as right. you know, <laughs> just oak and yeah. uh, or you know, a really fancy one of teak. The Merrimack, they 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 even, still even were using the Merrimack. Even Captain Nemo did not have a wooden <laughs> submarine. But uh, you had to be on a wood ship, which was yeah, increasingly otherwise, rare. Otherwise, the iron floor and hull beneath you. Wait, ships don't have floors. They have... Holes. Well, uh, but what's between you and the... Well, oh, you don't decks. stand on the hull. The deck. Exactly, the deck. The deck, thank you. The iron of the deck and the hull below you. I'm glad the, to be able to contribute to this episode. That's, you <laughs> knew what... I guess I should have known. It, it turned out there was a Star Trek way to know yeah, this. Army hardies. Um, in, uh, after World War I, he, uh, in 1922, with a two or three other MIT, he was on the faculty at MIT, he was teaching there, and along with some other MIT smarty pants, he founded two companies that year. One, the Spencer Thermostat Company, which- that sounds very 1920. Which two mergers later became Texas Instruments. What? Yeah, it was one of the the uh, predece- predecessor companies to Texas Instruments. Wow. The same year he founded, uh, I, I guess, a, a, collabor- a collaborator, a, uh, a, what, a collaborator? No, that makes it sound like he's a- He's a like, like a, a co-founder. Spy. Yeah, a uh, cohort, a comrade. No, a. Yeah, I mean, you can be a collaborator and not a spy, but it's not the you right and word. I are collaborators. What's the? It's not the word I want. A. Oh. Uh, um. A colleague. A, okay. Yeah, colleague. That's what, a good. What were you going to say? It was going to start with a C. Whatever it was, I was going to say. Uh, a colleague had invented a new kind of uh, rectifier called the S tube. Mm. You know, just a, a new kind of electrical. Electrical device. Right. And so he and uh, two other um, cohorts. Sure. Colleagues. Colleagues, collaborators. Caligulas. Two other Caligulas (laughs) founded the American Appliance Company to use this new rectifier to make silent refrigerators. 
Oh, nice. Think about the problem of the 1920s. That if your refrigerator, I guess, has a has is burning, <laughs> burning propane or natural <laughs> gas or something. <laughs> like today, when the fridge cuts on, you might get a little jump when it goes. But well, back back then, it was not like a chainsaw. The the refrigerator in my house is absolutely from 1979. Speaking of the 70s, and when it clicks on. I cannot tell it apart from the furnace. Like something goes on in the house and it's just like, Rrr. Our children will never know. Our microwave is, uh, yesterday started making a slightly, vibrating at a slightly different pitch. I don't know if the dish is a little off or it's set into the cupboard differently, but it sounds a little bit lower, I think. Uh-huh. And my kids were acting like there was a poltergeist. <laughs> what is going on? We have to call someone. I, was, I think it's, I think it's just making microwave, microwave. noise. Anyway, um, Within a few months, they have changed direction on their plan to put a silent refrigerator in every kitchen, and the American appliance company becomes Raytheon. Wow. In the space of a few months, this guy founded Raytheon and a predecessor to Texas Instruments. Wow. Um, he spends the next decade teaching at MIT in addition, you know, and watching his, uh, you know, I'm sure watching his bottom line grow because he is now a founder of, of two big machine companies. Right, although this is pre- um venture capital so neither one of them was worth a yes. billion dollars each of, each of them had tossed in 550 dollars and they were crossing their fingers right um he built a very early analog computer he, you know so he's he, in the 20s he's building a like a mechanical computer yes it's it, he called it a, it was a kind of differential analyzer which is uh you know a way to use very complicated uh, arithmetic methods to find answers to calculus problems, to differential equations. And that's something that becomes too hard for humans as the equations become higher order. But, um, you know, with a bunch of cogs and gears. You can make an electric slide rule, basically. Yeah, exactly. You can automate some of that. By 1932, he's the dean of the engineering school. And then uh, he begins to, he's so prestigious, he has a national profile. He joins various Washington, D.C., you know, quasi-governmental, you know, this is before the military-industrial complex, which he is about to essentially invent. <laughs> right. Um, Started Raytheon. Uh, but he's, you know, he becomes a, a big wig at a lot of these Washington, D.C. scientific institutions. Um, right. He's a DARPA. Yeah. The, yeah. the pre- predecessor story. He actually is, the, I think, the second chairperson of NACA, which is the predecessor of NASA. There was no space to, to, to give us an S in nineteen in the late nineteen thirties. I love him, but I'm 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 terrified to hear what's next. Oh yeah, what, what's your what's your guess? Uh, guided missiles, Tuskegee Airmen. <laughs> it, it could be anything at this point, <laughs> right? Guided missiles is actually quite close. Because hmm. um, as uh, no spoilers, but by this time World War II is about you know seems inevitable. Good old World War II. Uh, it was not yet called World War II. Here we are again, and he like every. Uh, person of his generation was remembering the lessons of the first war and he, <laughs> it turns out they weren't really <laughs> in this case his he learned he's you know maybe this is the secret of his success he learned a correct lesson which was the coordination between the military and actual scientists had been terrible oh. and in his opinion it had cost lives it had lengthened the war and you know because he's uh you know a uh, uh, Oh, his name is Vanivar. I assume he's from a good New England family. Right. He's um, a, a former Dutch colonial family. Look at this. Uh, the son of a universalist pastor, pastor from Everett, Massachusetts. It's, it's exactly what you want. Perfect. And as a result, he knows Frederick Delano, the uncle to the president. Oh, well played. So unlike a lot of these guys on the, you know, I'm sure a lot of the, these people on these boards are all um, 
East Coast elites. Right. I would not be surprised in well, the 20s and 30s. That's right. But he has, you know, he can get a meeting with FDR. So he goes into the, uh, wait, I was about to say the Oval Office, but is that right in, 30, in 1940? Uh, yeah, the yes. Oval Office, yes. Yes. Yeah, in fact, it's a couple presidents he's in, right? Yeah, well, they, they moved the big desk over. Uh, he uh, has a single sheet of paper on which he has outlined... Uh, oh, wait, they didn't move. You know, the Resolute Desk, I don't think, was in the Oval Office until Kennedy. Is that well, right? It was in some other room. It was in a. It was in some room upstairs. And not every president since has used the Resolute Desk. I think we got in trouble once for saying some president was at the Resolute Desk, and we got letters saying, uh, Ford and Reagan uh, used the Resolute. Carter used the Indomitable. Sure, a, fo- a, a folding table. <laughs> yeah, he, he used a ping pong table, but he took down the net when he had guests. So our man has our man determined that in World War One, although scientists were saying uh, one thing, we should use tube-driven rectifiers. Right. The and army, silent refrigerators. The army in the field was hooking up their tanks to horses, and uh, and that was a, uh, now he was going to make the difference. And this shouldn't surprise anybody who's familiar with the officer class of the army right. that they do not want a bunch of eggheads. They coming in and telling them how to do their job. <laughs> they fight the last war, Ken, every time. <laughs> and I'm an expert here because I can do a voice from a movie. Yeah. Of a uh, get hide, up, you maggot. Some kind of hidebound officer, right? Who doesn't want to hear what the eggheads in Washington think? <laughs> uh, so it's probably accurate. <laughs> so he has a single sheet of paper saying, "Look, there should be some oversight group that should all be coordinated through the executive branch. Then it should go down through the secretaries of the army and navy." Um, basically, what he's saying is. Someone, and he's the one holding the paper, should be running science for the military. Well, you know, this became a trope, right? If, if there's a certain uh, there's a certain era of World War II movie, at least, where you you go to some Washington, you know, some uh, s- some anonymous Washington office building uh, where girls in um, you know in pencil skirts with um, Andrew's sister's haircuts are bustling around carrying files and, and decoding secret things. Yeah, right. There's a there's there's machine learning happening. Yes, tapes are whirring somewhere. Uh that's exactly right. Stanley Tucci is making Captain America. That's right. This would have been pre-tapes whirring, I think. That's true. What would you have instead? Would you even have tubes? No. Just tubes Just... illuminating, right? <laughs> They're throbbing. Things are blinking. <laughs> that's right. Nothing is turning yet. Right. We haven't yet determined that science can make things rotate. You'd think rotating would have been first. Yes. But oh, instead, there was blinking, then rotating. Well, there was uh, there were like metal cylinders that were rotating. That's true. They had wax like cylinders. Automobile. They said things like, I'm just imagining them all talking in an FDR voice, even yeah. if it's not FDR. Ah, we need to. This nation <laughs> must not fall behind on the science of the atom. Uh, everybody always said the atom like there was only one. And if we could just, if we could just discover it. The atom. And that was true back then. You know, science was uh, a matter of t- not enough information. The problem was we didn't know what molecules were made of. We didn't know what caused polio. Uh, and that's we, all about to change. We did. We had separated the gases, right? Yay. We knew what gases were. A bunch of French people in the 18th century <laughs> had, had given weird names to gases, which right. later became the good names. But still, in, in 1939, we did not understand what a molecule was. Well, Is that right? No, that's not true. But, okay. you know, but how the atom... Reacts, you know, the structure of the atom, different competing theories are still going. Right. And now it's all actually very urgent because uh, uh, the, both sides uh, of the war think that f- nuclear fission is right. possible. The Nazis are up uh, separating heavy water in some, in some f- uh, Norwegian fjord. The British, the Americans, and the Germans all have competing experimental physicists uh, 
exploring the weapons potential of atomic energy Isn't and incredible. And this is what Bush wants to get in on the ground floor of. So he gives FDR this piece of paper saying, I mean, I don't, I, th- th- this meeting is not an Einstein like meeting about the atom, but it's got to be foremost in people's minds in 1940. And this is because we credit that Einstein letter with being the thing that attracted the president and the, the uh, political class to the idea that we needed to get ahead of this or the Germans would get ahead of it. I've never understood why every one of these theoretical physicists, why they were all from Germany. Like we had three competing programs, but they'd all gone to the university of Heidelberg somehow. Uh, in some cases, the common bond may be Judaism. Yeah, right. <laughs> like they, these were the people that could, they would have been building a bomb in Germany, except that the Germans had decided otherwise right. in, in violent fashion. Um, so this is the letter from Einstein, I guess, is the summer of 39. So this is now about a year later. And so Einstein has approved lots of scientific weaponry initiatives, but there's no centralization. There's and, no Oppenheimer. Yeah, well, there probably is. There was an Oppenheimer. Yes, but, but he is not the Oppenheimer. And in right. fact, Bush was the, if you're thinking of Oppenheimer as the centralized guy that all this runs through, Bush turns out to be the Oppenheimer. <gasps> because... Even though he's not a big name, like like the the actual phys- like physicist, the teller and the Oppenheimer, big na- big name now, yeah, right. Bush at the time was a big name. He was on the cover of Time magazine in 1944. He FDR uh, only needs 15 minutes to say yes. You're absolutely right. We are doing this wrong. He writes okay FDR on the proposal, which I guess is that's it. That's the equivalent of of Trump's button that gets the Diet Coke or whatever. Okay FDR. <laughs> And suddenly, um, Vannevar Bush is essentially the unofficial lead science advisor of the executive branch uh, going into World War II. Uh, Suddenly, he is the chairman of uh, what gets created, the National Defense Research Committee, which within a year has become rebranded as the Office of Scientific Research and Development. And it stays the OSRD throughout World War II, and that is Bush's... uh, Purview, play, it's play, absolutely play DARPA. It's one hundred has to be the yes. the forerunner. Yes, yeah. this is the beginning, and 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 he's doing it all from scratch. He's actually calling in meetings with the Secretary of the Army and the Secretary of the Navy and saying, "Hey, um, what if you listen to scientists and we gave you good stuff?" Uh-huh. The Army is kind of for it. He's friends with Stimson. The Navy guy is is a more hard bitten admiral type who doesn't want to hear it. Of course, so battleships he, will win the war. Exactly. So through yeah, so throughout the war, he's constantly. Um, you know, trying to cajole the Navy, but, uh, but good stuff is coming out of it. He, he turns out he's a genius at navigating all these bureaucracies, yeah. um, maybe more so than any actual science he does, but he creates a radar. He sees the potential of radar and creates a lab just to work on new kinds of radar, which absolutely did affect the war. Yes. We, yeah. uh, that's where the U S is airborne and mobile radar technology comes from. And using that technology, he also, uh, was oversaw the group that created, the proximity fuse, which, oh. which I had never thought of, but that's a huge part of winning the war. Sure, of course. If you have radar, you know, you, you think of somebody on the ground detecting planes coming in, but what if a projectile, what if a shell could actually use radar to determine when it was close to the thing it was going to hit? And it didn't have to hit it. It could just no. blow up next to it. It knew when it was close enough to blow up. That's amazing. And because the U.S. had, uh, including Bush, had been kind of skeptical of rocketry, the Germans were all in on rocketry, and the U.S. thought, those guys were crackpots, and that's why they had the V1 and the V2, and we were like, 
wah, wah, wee, wah. You know? <laughs> yeah, we were like, uh-oh, basically. And so that's why London gets blown up for years. Right. And, uh, you know, and eventually towards the end of the war, Germany's perfecting rockets that could cross the Atlantic. Right. So suddenly we care a little more. <laughs> suddenly it's not pubs anymore. And the proximity fuse, all of this is is the same sort of magnetic... Um, Magnetic field stuff. Oh, yeah. I guess that's related to his submarine stuff. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought about that. But he convinces the army that um, this proximity fuse is the way to go. And, in fact, it's the only thing we can use to narrow that rocket gap. The rocket gap. Because we don't have rockets, but we could blow them up with this. Right. And uh, it works. You know, it's, it, There's a precious bodily fluids gap. Towards the <laughs> 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 But, uh, yes, um, they did not tap his essence. Right. But... Uh, by the end of the war, I think like 44-ish, uh, the army is using this new proximity fuse against German rockets and ground targets because, you know. Right. You can <clears throat> half the time your, stuff. Half the time your bomb uh, ends up buried 30 feet under the Berlin streets instead of like air exploding. Well, and that ended up, of course, the little boy and fat man. There could be a bunker under there. Fat boy and little man. Well, so that's the other thing. He oversees the Manhattan Project. Like, that's the that's his third great um, scientific accomplishment of the war. Well done. Um, and he is the guy. He goes to Trinity. He goes to Alamogordo to, to watch the tests. He oversees it as, like, top administrator. Yes, he's the liaison between the <clears throat> oh, White House wow. and the actual scientists, Oppenheimer and Teller and the names you know, Feynman. So those guys are just up there on a plateau uh, with test tubes. It's really Bush that's... Pulling the strings. Yeah, and those and he's doing a lot of hard work. Yeah, yeah. You know, we today we glamorize the scientists and rightly so, but he's the one trying to get the right the, the ear of the right uh, military officers. And you know, at, early in the war, there's appropriations problems. You know, the the difference between the NDRC and the OSRD is that one did not have a congressional budget. <laughs> one had an N in it. <laughs> that's true. Well, this is the thing that's always amazing about that program is that, and that's never been clear to me is. How did they build the, I mean, they took over an entire town in Tennessee, put a fence around it and was like, well, we're doing something else here now. That was and Bush's th- call, by the way. Bush, Bush is the reason why Oak Ridge was Oak Ridge. Yeah. I can, I can only imagine. How did they build Hanford? How did they build Los Alamos? Like they had to, that was just, I mean, just the fencing costs alone. And nothing turns on a dime like government and military expenditure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> John, you and I are small business owners. Yes. I have an LLC with a funny name. Yeah, I do too. Uh, I don't hire anyone. We're sole proprietors. I've tried to hire people over the years, and people contact me and offer their services, but I'm always afraid to hire- What a nightmare. Some fan that's like, and I don't mean when I say some fan to be that dismissive, but people saying like, you need to be organized, and I will help you, and uh, so hire me as your your assistant and manager, but I always think that they're going to put cyanide in my coffee and- and then start pretending to be me. It's stressful to try to find somebody who can do a, a good job. And I don't even, again, I don't even run a company. This is just me trying to find somebody to moderate an internet group or something. It's super stressful. Because, you know, you who, who who's the right person? How do you know you can trust them? This is... Can you imagine if you were running a company and you needed five or ten employees? How difficult it would a be? A month? Uh, luckily, there's an easy way to find the right people. Tell me more. In, I keep I keep thinking about going uh, into small business. Indeed.com. This is where you should do all your hiring when you start your business, which will do what? What, what do you What do you make? Uh, surfboards. When you make surfboards, how many people are you going to need? Six. 
you need six people to make surfboards. And I, and I need it done fast and I want uh, payment flexibility and, and, and no long-term contracts. This is perfect. Indeed will search instantly through millions of resumes in their database. They, they have the largest database of their kind. Uh, they give you full control and payment flexibility. You don't, what you don't if si- I want to pause my account? Yeah, you don't sign any kind of long-term contract with them. You only pay for the people you need when you need them. Well, so I want great candidates for my surfboard company. I need them right away. They have an instant match feature, which will find you six surfboard uh, logistical experts with zero weight. So how do I go about signing up for Indeed? Because this sounds like exactly what I need to put my Roderick surfboards out on, on, the, on the market. If, like John, you are hiring for surfboard makers or any other kind of concern or consortium, uh, you will get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash omnibus. You're saying I'm going to get free $75 credit if I just upgrade my job post at indeed.com slash omnibus? That's their best offer available anywhere. And how long is this offer valid? This offer is valid through March 31st. Do terms and conditions apply? I've got some good news for you, John. Some terms and conditions do apply. It sure as heck wasn't Oppenheimer... Uh, filling out all those requisition forms. No, the scientists would have been terrible at that. Yeah. Feynman's playing bongos and probably using a <laughs> using those forms to, to light a, a, a crazy cigar. Right. Uh, I was going to say doobie, but it was probably a cigar. No, it was a cigar at the time. They weren't smoking doobies yet. They weren't smoking marijuana with an H. But he was, yeah, he was, uh, he was you know, <laughs> banging the cocktail waitress two at a time. <laughs> and Bush is a celebrity for it. He's on the, you know, the cover of time. People know that he's our, he's our egghead that's going to beat the Nazis. Wow. And in July 1945, with the war wrapping up, uh, you know, the Germans have surrendered. We are, although the general public doesn't know it, a few months away from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He publishes in The Atlantic an essay called As We May Think, mm-hmm. which is, it, it already has some kind of beautiful kind of pulp science fiction short story title. Right. English as she is spoke. It, but to me, it sounds like the future, you know, as like as, as we may think, you know, I don't know if it's actually... F- the four words that appear in order in Blake or, or Milton, but it it's a, sounds it's like as a mafia. Yeah. Right. It sounds yeah. like kind of the fake poetry of the pulps. Yeah. Uh, and it really conveys the future to me in a very forties and fifties kind of way. And the Atlantic publishes it. And the Atlantic really hypes up this essay. Like in the introduction, they say, this is the biggest thing since the American scholar in quotes, which was the, um, the famous address that Emerson gave to the, I think the Phi Beta Kappa Society uh-huh, at Harvard uh-huh. um, in the 1830s. Just he, envisioning the future of being an intellectual. Right. And in his case, the American intellectual, like the old, it was one of these kind of, uh, I'm going to say this is an epical moment things like right. we do on Omnibus twice a week. <laughs> <laughs> where, where he says the old European ways have failed. This yeah. is a new nation. Um, with new uh, transcendental insights, you know, the, the, the gifts that nature bestows upon us and our, you know, our, our philosophical brains and, you know, yeah. we have all these advantages and we can get rid of these old habits and traditions and create a new kind of knowledge. Basically. Our scientists don't have to speak French. Yes, they don't yeah. speak Latin, but they can go out and look at uh, at chestnut trees. Yes, and and somehow that will convey. It's 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 not. I've I read the American Scholar uh, in college, and it was never really clear to me that he he did define the the nineteenth century in any appreciable way. But the nineteenth um, century in America was defining itself, right? Every single day there was like <clears throat> a new gizmo, and the mystique is a huge part of that. 
So him just saying, guess what? It's an American century, bitches. Yeah. Like that, it, that works. Right. You know, it, 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 it was, it, he, the universe manifested that because Emerson told uh, Harvard that it was. Uh, so this is how the, um, the Atlantic hypes as we may think. And which is a, which is a thinking document, not a, it's not a, it's not an invention. Yeah. It's not a, a, a schematic or a blueprint, although later it's reprinted with a, an, an illustration because it does come with, as we, oh, we're finally going to get to the topic. It does come with a, an idea for a hypothetical invention, the Memex, but this is not something he's invented or indeed that people could invent. It's something that he has thought of in his head and thinks, I don't know how we're going to do this, but we need this object. It's quantum computing. Yes, but on a very, very primitive level. It's f- still furniture, uh-huh, basically. Uh-huh. But he's like, this is the furniture of the future. Uh-huh. He starts the essay by saying, look, uh, we can all see the war's about to end. He, you know, he does not say, because I've invented the atomic bomb. <laughs> Although it's hard to read it now without seeing that at the end of every sentence. Um, and what's, gonna, what's next for science? Um, it's, uh, f- you know, by, for biology, stuff hasn't changed much. But what are physicists going to do now that they've just spent 10 years on weapons? You know, what's, what's their problem? And as you said, because he was not a great engineer or researcher himself, but he was just an ingenious coordinator yeah. of research and engineering, he sees a problem that nobody else has seen. He is the first guy looking at this horizon of information overload. Huh. For the first time, the problem is not that we don't know... Um, how many electrons there are in, in, in this nucleus, or we don't know which of these Sarah will cure this disease. The problem really is there's too much to know and how is just a, but but we're still using the old methods. We're still paging through paper journals to try to, to try to navigate this. And that is the wrong way to do it. I, you've surely heard the apocryphal story of, and it may not be apocryphal, but I I remember the first time I visited Palo Alto, I heard some story. I was at some fraternity party, but you know, at, at Stanford, this is what they talk about at fraternity. I was parties, picturing you touring apparently. a lab. <laughs> you were not touring a lab. No, I was. You know, I was I was playing ultimate against the Stanford ultimate team, which was you know not it was not an authorized ultimate team. <laughs> But I remember someone telling me that that there was this incredible moment where the lunchroom in the biology campus was closed for renovations, and so the biologists had to use the lunchroom in the physics department, and all of a sudden biologists and physicists were sitting at the same lunch tables, and as a result of just that, um, all these new discoveries were made because someone would say like, well, I'm working on this. And they're the person, you know, sitting across the metal tray from him was like, huh, that sounds kind of like what I'm doing. And just the, just the forced collab, just proximity. Yeah. Uh, uh, Cross pollination. Yeah. So what, is it something like that where, uh, how do we deal with information overload? You have to put experts together. It's funny that you say that. I'm always very skeptical when I hear business thinkers say work from home will always fail because you need people bumping into each other in the hall right. and saying, what you working on, Susan? <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess, I, I guess, you know, in interdisciplinary ways, maybe I just never had a job where I was, you know, with, I was never the smart enough person with smart enough people to have those 
sparks. Yeah, but I. But maybe just, maybe at a at a at a genius ingenious startup idea, maybe that kind of stuff does happen. It just seems like at a, at a certain point, biologists were down to molecular biologists were down to molecules and and. Physicists were down to molecules. He doesn't, he doesn't talk a lot about cross-disciplinary stuff in the article. But what he does say is that each field now has generated a corpus so huge that you can't, and and he doesn't limit it to the sciences. You know, even lawyers and historians have have no efficient way to get to the knowledge they need to. That's been my experience to argue a case or to make a pattern in uh, in uh, is, is this is what you're saying when you every time you've tried to hire a contractor or. Well, it does. It does seem well, and in particular, right now in the uh, in the social sciences, we're we, it seems like we have to keep rediscovering concepts um, because there's not like a collected. Uh, there's not an agreement about what constitutes the corpus, right? There's the, we're and it's so far flung. It yeah. really is. I, I was joking, but it really is hard to overstate how much this was just like eight well-born white guys. Right. Doing all this work. And now that it's happening on six continents, uh, you know, there's who gets the Nobel prize. There's a lot of logistical issues. And this yeah. is, this is, he's a, he's a guy who sees everything logistically. He, he writes, um, man has built a civilization so complex that he needs to mechanize his records more fully. If he is to push his experiment to the logical conclusion, I think he means the human experiment and not merely become bogged down partway there by overtaxing his limited memory. Oh, this just feels like the utopian version of the internet that keeps breaking my heart. This is absolutely the utopian version of the internet. Because in this paper, the World Wide Web is born, even wow. though it's 1945 and we're still 50 years away almost from, from Tim Berners-Lee. But he just sees it as as a huge set of file cabinets. Basically. so, And he says this in the paper. He's like, look, Leibniz and Babbage all designed computers they couldn't build. I'm going to... Because they didn't have the parts. All right. But they knew the principles that would work. I'm going to tell you... The principles that will lead inve- that will lead to the memex, even though I cannot build a memex. And again, he knows the stakes here are quite high because he has seen what has come out of scientific progress, but also the downsides of it. You know, he's we haven't had Hiroshima yet, but he's aware of the 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 devastating potential and the the hope. You know, the both sides of the of the coin uh, of the of whatever the next scientific paradigm is. Right. Well, um, he recognizes now that you can weaponize things that didn't that aren't intrinsically yes. weapons. But despite that, he doesn't, he interestingly, he never seems to apply that to his, again, this utopian knowledge of a, of the proto internet he's about to describe. Huh. He says, um, you know, look, miniaturization is coming. Everything's getting smaller and better. So we can just assume that everything's going to continue to get smaller and better. He like, sees the transistor before it. Yeah. Arrives. He doesn't know that there's going to be transistors and, and uh, eventually microchips, but he's, he sees the trend because yeah. that's the kind of genius he is. Look what a telephone switchboard was. 20 years ago and look at it now. He keeps bringing up telephone. Um, what do you call this? The, the center of the, uh, yeah, right. The, whatever the hub the is. Hub. The, um, what is that? That's well, switch. Yeah. The switch board. No, 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 no. Exchange. Yeah, exchange. Is there that right? Is. Yeah. yeah. Exchange. Like he's seen how telephone exchanges have changed in the lot. And look, now we've got television. This thing is sending 16 images a second and they're pretty good. Deal with that. Yeah. So like, so he sees that this is uh, a trend of, of, of speed and complexity and smallness is coming. And interestingly, he brings it to bear on photography. He he says, uh, look, um, it used to be that to make a photograph, an image, you would need a bunch of monks, and then you would need a guy with a chemical bath, even in the age of photography. But now for the first time, we have efficient, dry photography. Imagine if that got so small, 
that you could essentially be wearing. He kind of envisions a Google Glass type thing mm. where a person is wearing a spectacles where he can just, you know, hit a button and every page in a journal that he looks at becomes instantly becomes uh, an image recorded somewhere with, um, you know, some kind of uh, Xerox like technology, you know, a, a charge, a c- capacitance charge on some kind of flat surface. Right. So without a bunch of, without a, a stinky chemical bath, you, we now have the first ability to make images and so, from TV broadcast them. He, he, uh, he foresaw East German spy technology of the <laughs> 1980s. That's exactly right. But he's, he's seeing our world, but with his stone knives and bearskins, right. You know, he's seeing a world where, um, and do you, do you do this? Like I had a cell phone for about a year before I realized that one of my main use cases for it was just literally taking a picture of physical text, you know, taking a picture of a map before I went on a hike or taking a picture of a recipe before the card went away or a menu outside a restaurant. I mean, do you use your phone to receipts? I do this all the time. I never do. Huh. And I know it is a I know it's a use case of phones because now at the at the trailhead of hiking trails, there's a, always a sign under the map that says Take a picture hey, of dummy, this map. Take a picture. And I always look at it and go, I don't need to take a picture of that map because I've I spent my whole life looking at a map yeah. and knowing I had to retrain myself. Yeah. Yeah. So you, and then of course I get out on the trail and I'm like, well, wait a minute, which way was the falls? And I'm like, oh, I didn't take a picture. Of it that. got to the point where if I'm researching something in a library, I used to be like, Where's the copy machine? And I had an iPhone. Wow. Like you have the copy machine. So you do a lot more library research than I do, it's let's true. be honest. I'm, I'm the American scholar. Yeah. You're out in nature like Emerson would have wanted. Right. That's right. Uh, I'm the throw of this podcast. So he says with, um, you know, he correctly predicts that uh, miniaturization and image capture is going to be a thing. He doesn't predict digitization. You know, he doesn't predict that this will all be stored on ones and zeros somewhere because that doesn't exist yet. Right. I mean, amazing what a leap that would have been to... To then make that stuff, he's he's trying to figure out a way to make it searchable. Yes, but not uh, not he doesn't foresee that he do, he it, has no it idea what a, data. The word database will not be coined until 1960. Whoa, uh, you know he he does none of the things that allow us to have access to this stuff. They're all decades away, but he has figured out a way to do it with um you know by incrementally advancing stuff he has. So let's say you use that microfilm, you know, image capture. You miniaturize the image into essentially microfilm. You could put the Encyclopedia Britannica on a matchbook. And this is mind-blowing stuff in the mid-40s. Right. You could put a university library of a million volumes in one end of a desk. That, that still is the way we described computerization even unto the 80s, right? Yes, it's like, like, it's amazing. This has in a world book, but it's on a CD-ROM. I mean, you still we still say, uh, we still try to contextualize our... Uh, miniaturization by saying they put a man on the moon right? and you have that, you know, that's on your Facebook page. When I talk about Watson, the IBM Jeopardy computer, you know, I will say when I, I tell people that it has 1.8 working, 18 Jiggle terabytes up. of memory, 1.20, I think it had 18 terabytes of working memory or something. Yeah. And what I say is, you know, that's the order of magnitude you would need to store every word in the Library of Congress. And then people can understand what 18 terabytes is. Like, right. Like we're still using the, so it seems like he's just using a metaphor. What's a teraflop while we're here? (laughs) We're not doing, we're not doing that. (laughs) Uh, It's a, it's a measure of, well. How many flops? Computing speed and power. Oh, I see, I see. Tera is the, well. Sure. You know the tera. I know what the tera is. Yeah, it's the flops I didn't know. 
So you think he's, when he says you could put a university library on one end of a desk, you think he's making a philosophical point. No, he is about to describe the desk. <laughs> he's like, is ever, he inventing a jukebox here? <laughs> basically, it is a jukebox. Um, and he also is thinking about user interface stuff. He's like, have you seen this vocoder where you put in text and it knows how to make sound come out? You know, it's yeah, one of the, right. it's essentially the, a very primitive speech synthesizer. It makes a Neil Young record. You can still hear a vocoder <laughs> on, you know, uh, what Peter Frampton records or share. Um, and also the stenotype, it was the early, sten- the early days of stenography, automated stenography where, and he was like, you know, you could combine those and suddenly you've got text to speech and speech to text. And he is blowing people's minds in the Atlantic in 1945. Because this all, this all sounds like science fiction, which is, which is also exploding at this moment in time, right? Science fiction as a, as a novel. It's going to be space travel. There's right. going to be, but he's, he's actually laying it out. And he's, and he's saying what the steps are going to be. And he even says, look, logic and arithmetic are going to get faster and automated. So there's going to be, you know, he kind of waves his hand at the fact that there's going to be computing basically, uh-huh. you know, cause he's, once we can figure out how to make these analog things smaller and faster, uh, you know, we'll be able, we'll be able to automate tasks that you think of as brain information tasks. I feel like this is something that you and I are both great at, which is waving our hand <laughs> at a set of ideas and going, this is all going to be a thing. Uh, we don't know how, but you can just see that it's coming. I, I don't know if I'm actually that good at abstract I mean, stuff I, like I that. I think that's what I do. That's, I sit and go yeah. like, oh, over here, just don't worry about it. it but this is going to be real, so get ready. And he gets people's heads around it by saying, look, imagine what a department store would be like if if you had this this invisible back end, this desk that you know every time a sales is sales a sale is made can tell accounting it can tell inventory it can tell um you know the bean counters who want to know what to order next month right you know like this could all happen at once in your department store and nobody has to go through a paper ledger cuz you know this is a world where we think of we, we're patting ourselves on the back about all these new business efficiencies but all the efficiencies are just file cabinets full of paper that as you're saying Andrew sisters have to Right, and, and triplicate was the big invention, <laughs> right. right? Yes. Now with just typing this once, you can give it to three different departments. Right, the mimeograph. Imagine imagine what a chemistry lab would look like where you could, you know, all this stuff could happen automatically. Imagine a law office. Early on in your life, did you ever work or interact with a mimeograph? No, my teachers had a ditto machine. And, and so you'd get these faded light blue worksheets yeah i i actually as a young man in our school and I, when i say young man i mean child our school had a child is father to the man <laughs> but Poor woman. you know my dad had had uh, file cabinets full of dictaphone tapes from um you know from what a thing you know yes. the, the 60s technology of like oh uh, in the case of so so and so and such such and such uh, so I I do feel like I touched the hem of this garment a little bit. My mom programmed those IBM twenty four sixty sixes or whatever. I mean, we all grew up in in facilities that did not yet have a computer. Our schools didn't. We went to schools that didn't have computers. Um, computers still took up big buildings. Yeah. So so we remember when the problem was, and this is what Bush points out: the problem is just indexing. Yeah. When all that stuff is sitting in drawers in paper. You can index it one way. You can choose, hey, I'm going to, I'm, future people will probably want to see this alphabetically or future people want to see this chronologically. Uh, it's a card catalog. Yes, but that's not, he says, that's not how memory works. That's not how the mind works. The mind is associative. 
The mind wants to make connections between point, uh, uh, something at the beginning of this document and something in the middle of that one, and maybe then follow the trail to the third end of this document. This is still the problem. <laughs> this is still the... It's the problem of organizing information even now. Yes, but he suggests that the way to solve it is... A very simple way to start solving it is with trails, where each person has their own series of links through these long text documents. So that you can you get to one place in a document and you get a, a a little code of dots that tells you, hey, I've either made a note here or there's a cross-reference to a different file or a different recording. And then if your computer can read that photo cell and then under the desk, you've got this microfiche reader. The desk, by the way, just to picture it, has a series of tilted screens up facing you, which are not... Um, CRT screens. He doesn't really get into what they would be, but you know, imagine a microfilm reader. They're yeah. probably just magnify screens, honestly. Yeah, right. Because you've got little tapes, little reels of, of microfilm under the desk that a series of literally machine gears and conveyors right. are loading up the right one like a jukebox. And then the you know that your machine has the some kind of photocell has read the dot pattern, like a, imagine a QR code yeah. in 1945, knows where that link goes, brings up the right document on your next screen, yeah. and then you can see them both. He's invented the hyperlink. It, he's invented hypertext and the web browser, basically, wow, wow, wow. in 1945 in, a, in desk form, in, but, in handy wooden desk form. But you would have to limit by some methodology, by some... Uh, uh, so conceptually, you would have to limit what the microfiche was. You you couldn't just have infinite no. microfiche. He says that, you know, here's what you have. You, you have 5,000 reels of standard text, and then you've got your own that you can record on. So, okay. you know, using that dry photography technology, you know, the photo cell in your glasses or whatever, you can also make your own snaps or recordings. Um, and then you've got modular ones. You know, if you're if you're a lawyer, you want to get the all the case law from your state. Lexus Nexus. Yes, you you know that's the thing you add. And he never quite get to the fact that it would be distributed because that's how, just a bridge too you? far. Yeah. yeah. But he does say, you know, there is one point where he says something like, um, you know, probably from home, but not necessarily. You wouldn't have to be. Nothing here says you have to be at home. So it's clear that he can see that that's not a built-in limitation. He just doesn't know how to solve the problem of centralizing it and then distributing. Because he's imagining probably still a government office building in Washington, D.C., yes. where there are 25 of these desks. And instead of, yeah, instead of a basement full of filing cabinets, you've got everybody sitting at one of these, you know, and, and somebody with a cart coming around with the reels you've requested. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, wow. Um, so, yeah, and it's fun to imagine, because it is basically the World Wide Web. Yeah. But it's fun to imagine the World Wide Web working behind the scenes like that with a bunch, with a little guy with a cart sticking in, you know, you click on a link and what that means is, Somebody saw the photo cell, you know, sent out a signal. Maybe somebody had to bring you the right thing, load it into the side of your desk. It rolls into the reader and up pops the thing. It's, he invented the University of Washington Library, except <laughs> you're the person with the cart, right? Yes. And he says it's, uh, he, he says what this will lead to is wholly new forms of encyclopedias, um, you know, limited to a, you know, he means limited to a trade and indexed any, any way you want it. Right, right. Basically a database, although again, not a word yet. Um, and a new profession of trailblazers. He predicts that there will, this will be a job. There will be an information economy of people who are good at, you know, he predicts computer science basically. Um, so what is his life? Is he married? Does he, does he go home at night and, and, uh, listen to the radio? Like what's, where is he? In space and time. Yeah, I mean, he's just an academic. You know, he's a, yeah. this all came out of being the head of the engineering department at MIT. He's, he's got a, 
he, he wears got bow ties. A, he's got a wife and two sons, and he's talking about this over the dinner table. Yeah, and I think he had been thinking about the Memex. He, by the way, he never says in the article or anywhere else I can find what Memex stands for, but it's kind of implied that it's the memory extender, maybe yeah. or expander. Uh-huh. That your you know you, your brain is no longer what's in your head; it's in your brain plus all this stuff in your desk. And it's, he thinks, it's a codex. Yes. Except a Memex. And, and you are kind of infused into it. Like you are now, uh-huh. your memory, there's an overlap between your memory and your desk's uh-huh. contents. Uh-huh. And he really, he cements that by thinking a lot about what the user interface would be. You know, he talks about how you're going to have a, a series, you're going to have a keyboard and a series of levers. And, you know, depending on how far you jerk the lever over, it'll jump either 10 pages or 100 pages. By the way, this is the same People are using that interface exactly, to listen yeah. to podcasts, yeah. to watch Netflix. Well, he's um, also to, inventing to the, Google Books, the cyborg. Yeah, because these are people that uh, that the machine and they become a, a single unit. And he never grapples with that. Like he never grapples with what you know. He says he, he, to him, "This is just a, an amazing convenience." Like he's created, uh, you know, uh, uh, an, an artificial limb or a pair of glasses or something. You know. He never really stops to think, wait, if this fundamentally changes the brain, what does this do to the people who are using it? And this is something we are starting to think about today for the first time. Now, does he conceive of this as women's work? Because my experience of this generation of people imagining the imagining this stuff, then they also think of it as, um, at, at, at some level, uh, secretarial work, which they... You know, the early days of computers, a lot of the computer programmers were women right. because the men that were bu- building and buying the stuff were like, well, it's a typewriter, you're, isn't it? You're punching holes in cards and putting yeah. them in order. And so you see all those pictures of the early days, and this is kind of how my mom got into it, which is just like, oh, well, you know, women, I guess. The, the article is entirely ungendered for the most part. He, um, you know, he, he uses he as his generic program. It, but this is funny. Like he 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 predicts this. He talks about you know once once machines can do arithmetic and logic, he says such machines will have enormous appetites. One of them will take instructions and data from a whole room full of girls armed with simple keyboard punches. <laughs> there it is, <laughs> of course. And he's very modern. Of course, we'll just have a. I'm very egalitarian. Yeah. A, a room of women will run this. Will, will serve this great well, mis- boring machine. Liberates them from the kitchen. <laughs> exactly. And you won't need the kitchen in you either because that'll have all the labor-saving devices. Anyway, so his work on... So he writes this article, which kind of waves its hands and creates the information age without the technology to do so, but just because he is a very far-thinking man. And and, and it's, a, it's a smart enough idea, and he describes it well enough that the Atlantic editors feel like this is something for every tweed-suited person in America. And even more than that, it catches on to the degree that Life reprints it huh. in a slightly abridged version that fall in September. So this is now on the other side of Hiroshima. Right. Maybe. Oh, uh, boy. Um, but no, but nobody makes the connection. I mean, today we can look back and see, hey, look, the thing that he invented turned out to be just as ominous and just as much of a double-edged sword as atomic power. Yeah. Um, we've seen the surveillance uh, results. We've seen the... Uh, you know, every downside of the internet. Yeah, right. The, the, the utopia societal didn't breakdown. Come to pass. The, yeah. Um, but he doesn't appear to recognize that. But what happens is it appears in life with a, like a nice new illustration of what the Memex might look like, you know, because this is, again, even for a more um, 
dumbed down middle class audience, you know, imagine if your home had this amazing uh, desk. And at the time, a young man named Douglas Engelbart, who is shipping, uh, he's a radar tech in the uh, army. I think he's shipping out of San Francisco. And while he is on his way to the Pacific, the war ends. The, the the novel 1984 was published in 48, 48 or not no 49 yeah 48 or 49 so yeah written in 48 published in 49 so this is like it's in the it's either in the water or Orwell read this article in Life magazine <laughs> <laughs> right I mean not not it's not direct but you know everybody's thinking about I'm trying to think how much how forward thinking is the tech in 1984. I mean, we we associate it with um, gloomy technical dystopias of Terry Gilliam movies and Ridley Scott TV commercials. But let's see how much of that is in I the mean, book. It's there the are, surveillance, right? There, the, there's a surveillance, right? And there are giant screens. Oh no, wait. Do you just see? Maybe you just see paintings of Big Brother and his no, and no, his Semitic enemy. He, well, I guess I'm I'm thinking of the filmic representation <laughs> of it, and he's always he's always on a screen. He's always talking on a screen. It's not just pictures. Are there? Yeah, I think there are big screens. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, the, but I, I could if you told me that the the, the dystopia of nineteen eighty four was just filing cabinets, and not actually um, very science fictiony. Yeah, there's. I, a, I might believe it. There's telescreen. Is the is, is that the, what they say? They say telescreen. So, but yeah, it, it would have been clear by then that television was the future, and that's true of Fahrenheit four fifty one as well. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um. Anyway, so this Douglas Engelbart on his. Uh, carrier to the Pacific. He winds up in the Philippines during the occupation and he is on the remote island of Leyte on, uh, it's not clear where, but in uh, ends of the earth, basically he's in a stilt, a bamboo hut with stilts and the hut next door to where he's stationed uh, at his radar job has a red cross library and the red cross library gets life magazine. And Douglas Engelbart is a young technical minded man and he reads this abridged version of As We May Think, which has now been filtered down from, you know, the highest levels of Manhattan Project, scientific elitism, down to the Atlantic, down to life with pictures. And he sees it all. He's like, this is exactly what I've been thinking of. This is what the future is going to be. And so after the war, when he gets home, he chooses, unlike all his peers, not to go into AI. You know, everybody kind of thought that was, that was the way, this is the way of the future. How do we teach how do we get computers to be so good that, they, that they're like people? And instead, he thinks that's the wrong question. That's premature. Um, what we need to do is to, how do we get people to operate the computers better? Like he thought that Bush was asking the right questions. And so he starts a research lab, which ends up basically in creating the 20th century. Most famously, it's user interface stuff. Like he creates the mouse. His lab creates the um, precursor to the, the GUI, the graphical user interface, the windowing... Uh, environment that we're all used to on computers today. Um, this is the mother of all um, press conferences or whatever. The what do you mean? The Bush paper or Bush or Engelbart reading Bush's paper? The, the whatever that um, the demo was in 1968, where all these things were were oh, shown. Oh yes, 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 yeah, yeah. The yeah. mother of all demos, I guess it's called. And I guess his um, his lab also. Uh, as a result, I think, of Bush's influence, his lab uh, led to hypertext and uh, networked computers. And he, I guess he's more famous for the user interface stuff, but Engelbart and his and his uh, associates were equally foundational in 
creating everything about what makes the internet and the World Wide Web work today. You know, Steve Wozniak said, Wozniak? Wozniak. Steve Wozniak. Yeah, they call him the Woz, not the Woes. Yeah. That'd be weird. <laughs> uh, Steve Wozniak said, yeah, Engelbart basically created the computer age. And so it all starts there in this little bamboo hut in the Philippines where he reads about Bush's desk and thinks, this is exactly right. And although Bush didn't have the tech to do it, Engelbart kept at it as, as the trends that Bush predicted all happened one after another, miniaturization and so forth. Um, and he made it happen. Wow. But it was predicted in the Atlantic in 1945. And that concludes the Memex, entry 774.EX3607, certificate number 18461 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, more and more unlikely every minute of every day, and in fact, social media no longer exists in my era, so I may be... This, I may be the Atlantic Magazine test case. You're the, you're the American scholar opting out and going out into the woods. I am. I'm in the woods now. Uh, but you can still find our output uh, archived at Omnibus Project. And Ken is still tweeting hilariously and full of insight and information at Ken Jennings. I would say I'm mostly tweeting quiz show promotion. Quiz show promotion. That's what uh, people want. I have a... Uh, every, I have, every night around 7, I tweet, New Jeopardy just dropped. <laughs> just got to let people know. <laughs> I have a, a new Patreon where I am doing weird long-form writing and, uh, and other uh, stuff that I used to awkwardly try to shoehorn into social media and now am awkwardly trying to reinvent the blog uh, over at patreon.com slash John Roderick. Omnibus has a fantastic Patreon that supports the show. That you now mentioned second. I'm sorry. It was, it's the first time I've ever mentioned mine. The Omnibus Patreon uh, has actual tiers where at different levels of contribution, um, you actually get real physical material, real opportunity to talk to Ken and I via Zoom, actual perks. And that is at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. And um, you can Gmail us, which is really what it is. Is that a verb? <laughs> you can Gmail to us Gmail? the we, Omnibus we skipped, Project. We skipped F-mail. Oh. We, we went right from email to Gmail. We went to a, Gmail. As a culture. The Omnibus Project at gmail.com. And you can, and there are lots of fan groups uh, around the Futureling community, most prominently on Facebook and um Reddit, Discord, uh, just search for the Futurelings name wherever fan groups are sold. And you can mail us actual physical items because we exist in... Uh, in meat space? Yeah, meat space. Spatial time. Here at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. And those sounds you hear in the background are Ken opening the mail. It's very complicated. This... um. This mail said uh, it said fragile on it, and then there was a, a picture of a leg lamp. So I guess it said fragile. Mm-hmm. So these so Monica has sent us. Um, whoa, Monica said she has watched Jeopardy since 1963 and has never missed an Alex Trebek episode of the show. Whoa, that would be over 8,000 Jeopardies, Monica. 
That's insane. <laughs> wow, Monica. I guess if you had a VCR in 1984 and, and kept going... Well, because nobody can be home every night at whenever Jeopardy comes on. Well, is, wasn't Jeopardy at the time just a weekly show? No, it was always daily. In the in the 60s, it was uh, usually an afternoon show. I but think. in the 80s, it was on every day. It's like a, it's like it's like Price it's, is Right. It's been on every weekday since 1984. At what time? It varies with your market. Uh, here in Seattle, 7:30 p.m. New York and LA, seven. Uh, I mean, it's possible people watch the evening news every day. I guess every single day for yeah. 40 years. I mean, I don't know. Congratulations, Monica. Pretty amazing. She's a beekeeper. So she has sent us, I don't know what she sent us. Look, here's one that says to John, be gentle. So I don't want to toss it to you. Okay. I don't know if mine is the same. Where does she live? Near the Minnesota Arboretum. She says if we're ever at Paisley Park, she's right down the road. I've never been to Paisley Park. I'm unwrapping my... So she's an... Is it apiarist? 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 All right. Well, let me see. This thing that you won't toss to me requires that I get up. Oh, boy. Well, I just opened mine, and I can't tell what it is. It looks like maybe the... It looks like a microphone. The thing that Steely Dan was named after? (laughs) Okay. Oh, I thought that was a stripy T-shirt like you might get if you were in the Russian Navy, but it's really just wrapping paper. It does look like the Hamburglar in wrapping paper form. Okay. I have to, it's actually poked through the plastic. She sent us some honey from her bees. Oh, I love honey. There's a little typewritten sort of fortune here. Oh, it says ray guns for playtime. They are made with fish floats, earrings, a coro necklace and bracelet, skull beads, crystals, trim, chain mail, and a denicola uh, pen. It's really good. Sound effects not included. Check out my website for more fun art. Does she tell us what her website is? Oh, look at this. It's it's very uh, 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Boo, 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 boo. Yeah, it's a really, it's not steampunk view. It's, it's really glammed boo. out. It's also kind of dangerous. She, she also sent a little briefcase. Hey, this is a Memex related. It says the complete works of Shakespeare. And when you open it up, it has all the letters of the alphabet and says some assembly required. <laughs> well, we are uh, 10,000 monkeys in 10,000 typewriters. Uh, it, it appears that this version of the selected works of Shakespeare could not have punctuation. Oh. Or any numbers. Well, uh, could, does it have, have capital numbers. letters? Is it the E.E. E. Cummings version? It's going to be all... The letters are different sizes, confusingly. So the C, F, H, K, N, O, Q, S, W, and Y will be smaller than the other letters as you read your, oh, that's your lines. Gotta, this has got to be some kind of code we're meant to in, interpret. MonicaTheGreat.com is where she makes stuff. This is really great stuff, Monica. Are, Thank you for sending us your art. Are our laser guns the same? Yours seems to be... No, they're not. Mine is spiky on the back. Spiky on the back, and mine is ornate. She also must make uh, some kind of clothespins because she just sent us... Are these clothespins? What are these? She makes clothespins. She makes (laughs) clothespins. Say it five times. I love... That's one of my favorite Rolling Stones psychedelic (laughs) songs. Oh, no, her grandpa made these clothespins in 1945, and he made the machine that made them. But did he make the machine that made that machine? They are not spring-loaded clothes pins. They're the old-fashioned kind that are just... They, they rely on the natural springiness of wood. This seems like an ad we're doing for a new company that will send you <laughs> the right number of organic clothes pins every month that rely on the natural springiness of wood. 
So my mom grew up in a home where they, you know, they had, uh, they manually washed their clothes with some kind of washboard and, and plunger. And then her job in the winter was to, well, in the summer too, but was to take the clothes out and pin them to a wire. And she said in the winter in Ohio, they would, the clothes would freeze and then they would go out and hit the clothes, the frozen clothes with a hammer or a paddle. And knock the ice off, and that was how you dried your clothes in the winter. <laughs> Monica is so multi-talented. She has she sent us some rocks she painted like bees. Looks like maybe blown glass uh, candy corn. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is going on here? Booby pins, which are like um, what thumb, little decorative earring type thumbtacks with n- nipples painted on them. So you're meant to put them instead of googly eyes. You're meant to put them. Yes. As boobs. Finally, googly boobs. <laughs> Equal time. And, oh, this says, it's a little box that says, there are times when the eyes in your brain, and when you open it, you see maybe Ed Asner as Gandalf, and it says, stare back at you. That That is Ed Asner? No, it's it's just an old bearded guru type. Uh, This is a, a remarkable, and then postcards. Thank you for the multi-talented Monica for... um. Sending us... Yeah, what an incredible care package. It, it's remarkable. Uh, so, yeah, don't feel like you have to send us 20 handcrafted things. But you, but you could. You could. I just don't want the barrier to entry to be so high that people just stop sending you um, their grandpa's flask from the trenches. Well, that's the thing. We, we initially started this because I wanted people's old sunglasses, but now it has become like a, a real like treasure trove. But we also get an awful lot of postcards and uh, There's still Christmas more stuff cards. I didn't see. Here's bottle caps that say you're not worthy. All right. Here's some kind I of a ceramic in my mind. duck with a tassel. Here is a, a kind of a mosaic uh, cupcake uh, with a foot. Oh, it's, a, it's on a chain. A mosaic cupcake with a foot. You've never heard anyone say that before? This, be- this is getting a... Uh... Do you think if I Googled mosaic cupcake with a foot, how many hits do you think there will right, be? Go ahead and do it. Nope, zero. This is the this is the first mosaic cupcake with a foot in history. Because if you look for mosaic cupcake, there are there, those. There are thirty one hundred results. But by adding the foot, Monica has really um, advanced the field. <laughs> this is beautiful art. Thank you, Monica. Have you? Uh, are you waiting for me to say something? You said the email address. So. Oh, I think I said all yeah, the things. Yeah, usually we end with a Patreon, but now that it's a uh, footnote to yours, it comes <laughs> earlier in the, in the read. <laughs> let's do. Uh, let's do that again. Omnibus Project. No, Patreon.com/slash Omnibus Project is where you help support the Omnibus Project with your generous contribution and get cool stuff and get very cool stuff, including uh, show notes. And um, envelopes that have our DNA on them. A bonus episode a month. Sometimes you, a bonus episode a month, which is always great, where we where we uh, cover the addenda. People write in and say, "Actually, we should call it the actually episode." That's actually a pretty good name. Yeah, and then we uh, and then we you know we beat back your your in, incursions into our into our thinking into our expertise. Also, at some level, you might get to interact with Mindy Jennings. <laughs> who is truly the brains behind this operation. And it's probably her DNA. I don't think I'm... You and I are not licking the envelopes. No, I've never licked an envelope. Uh, not in since your life? Ni- not since 1992. Did, were you aware when you licked your last one? Is, is it like... Uh, do you have like a, a chip or a pin for how 
how long it's been since you licked your last envelope? I think that's maybe not true. I I, I worked as a clerk in a stock brokerage until 1994, and I think I was licking envelopes then. When would I have licked my last envelope? Who knows? Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.